The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. As Jesus went along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, for him to have been born blind? Neither he nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as the day lasts, I must carry out the work of the one who sent me. The night will soon be here when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made a paste with the spittle, put this over the eyes of the blind man, and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, a name that means sent. So the blind man went off, washed himself, and came away with his sight restored. His neighbors and people who earlier had seen him begging said, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? They brought the man to the Pharisees. It had been a Sabbath day when Jesus made the paste and opened the man's eyes. So when the Pharisees asked him how he had come to see, he said, He put a paste on my eyes, and I washed, and I can see. Then some of the Pharisees said, This man cannot come from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How could a sinner produce signs like this? And there was a disagreement among them. So they spoke to the blind man again. What have you to say about him yourself, now that he has opened your eyes? He is a prophet, replied the man. Are you trying to teach us, they replied, and you a sinner through and through, since you were born? And they drove him away. Jesus heard they had driven him away and went and found him and said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Sir, the man replied, tell me who he is so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you are looking at him. He is speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe and worshipped him. Jesus said, it is for judgment that I have come into this world so that those without sight may see and those with sight turn blind. Hearing this, some of the Pharisees who were present said to him, We are not blind, surely. Jesus replied, Blind? If you were, you would not be guilty. But since you say, We see, your guilt remains. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. An ancient question is posed and answered in the very first few lines of this Gospel. There's a man. He's born blind. Such a sorrowful state could only be the result of sin. So who was it, him or his parents? And the answer is given unambiguously. Jesus clearly says, neither he nor his parents have sinned. So if this idea prevails in our minds, Jesus really says, reach in there and take hold of it and throw it away. It's wrong. The very starting point of our questioning is misplaced. But then Jesus follows with really a difficult teaching. And it's this. 
He was born blind, the Lord says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What does this mean? God is pleased for the innocent to have been born blind so that the power of God can be demonstrated. This is very difficult to take, isn't it? Because the same could be said and inferred for all of the innocent suffering that we know of in the world. A child is hit by a car. Uh, you know, a mother develops lung cancer. Um, uh, a, a young couple, you know, find that their house has been destroyed in a flood. Um, children are kidnapped. One is made into a child soldier. The other is trafficked across the world. These are horrible things. Tragedy after tragedy befalling the human family. And yet in today's gospel, we hear from God himself, oh no, they didn't sin. No, 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 it's not because of that at all. These things happen so that the works of God might be displayed in those lives. It's very difficult to accept. Philosophers call this the problem of evil. And really, it's probably the best argument from the atheist position. It's often articulated like this. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, then he should eradicate evil and suffering from the world. He'd be powerful enough to do it. He'd know about it. And his goodness would compel him to do so. But lo, there is suffering and evil everywhere, at all layers of society, at all layers of the human heart. And often it is where it is most offensive to the innocent. Often it tramples the most tender of souls. So there mustn't be a God. Or, if there is, he's not the kind of God that one would want to worship. Or so the argument goes. And that's a sound argument, really. I mean, the logic follows well. For believers, this is often cause for a legitimate crisis in faith. And there are those, in fact, there are many who would leave the faith on this grounds, following this logic. It's just in, in, irreconcilable to the mind. Let's turn for a moment to one of the champions of our faith and consult him on the problem of evil. And I speak of St. Thomas Aquinas. What does Thomas have to say about this problem? We can say just a few things to assert here that position us a little bit better. Firstly, St. Thomas would say that suffering and evil are not actually positive things. They're negative things. They're the lack of a thing. They're like cold or the dark. What is cold except the absence of heat? Heat is a thing. Cold is the absence of that thing. What is dark other than the absence of light? Light is a positive thing. It can be created. Dark can't really be created. Rather, we can only take light out of the picture and darkness is, is what's left. Likewise, what is suffering and evil? Well, Thomas would say it is the lack of peace, of health, of integrity of being. Something that ought to be there is not there. And as a result, we have suffering and evil in a person's life, in a situation. 
That's very important to get straight in our minds because it allows us to stop thinking that God has created something bad. That's not what's happened. Secondly, Thomas would say, in a changing world like ours, growth, decay, and even death are part of the natural order. Um, A gazelle eats the grass, a lion eats the gazelle. It's the circle of life, in a sense, of the natural world. Um, When we see a lion eat a gazelle, we're not struck with horror because there's something natural and proper about it. It's like, yeah, lions eat those things. That's fine. On the contrary, though, when we see let's say, reckless driving that claims innocent lives, well, that does strike terror into our hearts because it's not natural. It's unnatural. It's not proper. It's, it's highly improper, and it's highly offensive. So that brings us to two definitions that St. Thomas gives us about suffering for us rational creatures because we're not just animals. Um, we're created in the image and likeness of God, and we're called to a more noble expression of life. So Thomas says that there are these two kinds of categories of evil and suffering for us. One uh, is called poena, which is where we get the word penalty or pain or punishment. It's not suffering that I choose, but it's suffering that I undergo from time to time. And sometimes it's a direct result of something bad that I've caused. There's a penalty for that. Uh, Alongside this, there's a second kind of suffering, and that's called culpa. Think of the word culpable. If I'm culpable for a crime, then I'm responsible. I'm answerable. I freely chose to do the wrong thing, and it's bad. (laughs) It causes suffering. So take this example. Let's say Bobby steals Freddy's car. Um, That's culpa. Bobby has inflicted a kind of suffering on Freddy. He's taken his car. And Freddy has to weather that suffering. As a result, Bobby has to be imprisoned. That's not culpa. That's poena. When Bobby freely chooses culpa, that is to say, when he freely chooses something that's wrong, he causes suffering. And it reduces a little bit who Bobby is. He starts to become less good. He starts to lack integrity. He moves in the direction of decay. But when Bobby endures the penalty of his crime, it's suffering again. I mean, no one wants to spend time in a prison cell. But it somehow draws him back towards the good. It repairs him, and it repairs some of the damage that is incurred in the world. I want to say one last thing that Thomas gives us about God's will in all of this. We've already said God doesn't will evil. God has an active will, and it is always good because God is love. God is mercy. God is peace. God is all of those good things for us. But God does have what we call a permissive will. That is to say, God is able to see something that's moving in the wrong direction. And he says, well, my providence can can cater for that. In fact, I'll even use it. I don't like it. But I'll, I'll work that into my artwork. 
You know, I'll use those colours and those shades for good. Innocent suffering is not part of God's original plan for us, but it is part of the world that we today find ourselves in. It's everywhere. The question for us to ask is not really, why did this happen? Oftentimes, that's impossible for us to comprehend. Who knows how many infinite checks and balances God has worked into the equation of why this or that tragedy has happened. The question, as tempting as it is, is not why, but where to from here? What's next, Lord? I'm still looking to you. I still trust you. Speak. Your servant is listening. Jesus didn't promise us a life free of suffering and evil. Think of the Beatitudes, chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. Blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is to say, they wait for what's right and they don't receive it, at least not immediately. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure, like those children we called to mind earlier. The peacemakers, the persecuted, the insulted, the oppressed. To these, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Think of Jesus speaking with his disciples before the night of his own arrest. He says, I have told you all of this so that you will not fall away. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have conquered the world. And we see this echoed in his apostles. Peter says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Paul joins the chorus. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yeah. But not only this, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This is very strange language, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's odd. It can't be interpreted except in faith. Are Christians just insane people? Is that what we're to understand from all of this? We love what is wrong. We love what is evil done to us. No, that can't be the case. Any Christian who spent any time with the poor, with the marginalized, with the oppressed, with the reforming sinner, with his anger and whatnot, they know what suffering is. They're not in denial. The children in our school, for that matter, they know what suffering is. They're in touch with it. The parents who bring their children for baptism, uh, the people in our nursing homes, all of us, wherever we are, whoever we are, to be sure, we've tasted suffering in different measures, but we've all tasted it. We all know what it tastes like. Perhaps the best answer for us, as we return to this blind man whose vision is restored, and the best answer to the problem of evil altogether is how each of us are able, by grace, to engage it. Whether we fall into the trap of saying, yeah, they deserve that much, they deserve a little more, I don't deserve this much. That's very difficult for us to try and do with any accuracy. The fact is Jesus didn't deserve the suffering he underwent, but he willingly did. In Jesus, we see perfect love sparing nothing of itself for us. 
but in some ways even closer to home. It's almost more profound if we think about those people in our own lives, those meek, weathered souls who walk anonymously without seeking any glory for the lives they live. And we know they've endured so much. I think we can all call people to mind who have tremendous suffering punctuating and pervading their lives. Why are they not embittered? Why are they not villains taking revenge on the world? How is it that they are able to smile with such radiant warmth? How is it that their concern for others so far exceeds their concern for themselves? How is it that they are able to hold the vulnerable and the violent, the oppressed and the oppressor, with such tender strength and such strong tenderness? Anyone can point out the problem of suffering. In a sense, it's child's play to wave the finger at what's missing. Something far more perplexing and wonderful and worthy of contemplation for each of us is what we call the mystery of suffering. The Paschal mystery. The sacrifice on the altar of Calvary that each of us participate in. The story of death, which by some strange miracle of love gives birth to unending life. Our faith is anything but pretense, anything but airy-fairy fables. Uh, it doesn't actually even make us feel better about these things we have to endure. Our faith is real because suffering in this world is real. Our sorrow is real, our fears, our hurts, our guilt and shame, all of it is real. In the face of all of this, you and I are dependent on a real faith, a real hope, a real love, all of which has the capacity to endure. They will outlast any suffering and all evil. Of such faith, hope and love in this broken world, it's a wonderful thing, a tremendous, spectacular thing for people to witness. It's like a torch suddenly lit up in a dark, cold room. So finally, what are we to do on today, Leitare Sunday? We're to open our eyes and see. See this great big world of suffering around us. We're to receive it. Hold it tenderly, embrace it, faithfully walk alongside it. We're to pray. And our prayer is to be not only thoughts and words, but actions also. And lastly, we are to endure. Knowing that God's will active and permissive, is trustworthy. God will bring joy from sorrow, peace from distress, health from sickness, even life from death. It's what he does. And the works of God will be displayed therein. It's time to wake up because Easter is dawning. <laughs>